We're in Ephesians chapter 4 this morning. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 6 primarily. There's a go deep sheet always out by the CDs, and, and so a go deep sheet is a sheet with a bunch of questions on it regarding the passage that we're looking at. So we can't cover everything on a Sunday morning from a passage, and often we leave all kinds of, I leave all kinds of things out. So this helps you go deeper into the passage and see how it applies to life. You can pick one up uh, right there by the CDs when you go today. If you want to go even further, you can come to uh, Big B Coffee on Wednesday nights at 6.45. Um, we gather kind of out in the big room, and then we go into the conference room at 7 o'clock, and we spend about an hour thinking together, talking together, laughing together, having a good time around God's Word. So we'd love to have you come to that, too. Um, <clears throat> before I read the passage, let me just say this. The, the prayer project... For this week, praying three times a day, and and last week the prayer pra- practice, which was a uh, spiritual discipline called examen or examine, which uh, we practice looking at ourselves each evening before the Lord and listening to anything He wants to tell us about our conduct during the day, our attitudes, etc., so that we can better live for Him. Um, every week now for the last six months, we've had some kind of spiritual discipline practice for people. And I just want you to know, if you haven't thought about this, um, you cannot help but grow spiritually if you just do those practices. I mean, there should not be anybody at Lockwood who says, well, I'm not growing spiritually. Um, because just doing the practices we've been doing will grow you spiritually. And for the next three months, we're going to start a new practice, which I think um, Kevin says, at least, and I think he's right, will be the most challenging of the ones that we practice this year, which is the, the discipline of silence and solitude. But it'll make a difference in your life. I just want to encourage you to, to take advantage of these uh, projects that we're working on as a church family, and, and let's grow together. Ephesians 4, 1 through 6, as a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body And one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. My dad was 17 years old when he signed up to go into the Marine Corps. He and three of his buddies um, signed up together. And they wanted to go off to the South Pacific and get revenge for Pearl Harbor. They wanted to join my dad's brother, who had been there since 1942 with the Marines and had seen all kinds of action, including the horrific Battle of Iwo Jima. On August 6th of that year, 1945, which was after the boys decided to join up, but before their induction, the U.S. dropped an atomic bomb on Hiroshima. Three days later, Nagasaki was bombed. Six days after that, Emperor Hirohito uh, announced the Japanese surrender. And then a few weeks after that, on September 2nd, aboard the USS Missouri in Tokyo Bay, uh, the instrument of surrender was signed. So my dad 
um, when he was discharged from the Marine Corps, I didn't see this until after he died, but he was discharged as a uh, World War II vet, but he never made it to the South Pacific and he never saw combat, at least not with the enemy. But he joined the Marines looking for a fight and that was my dad's way. He was determined to find what he was looking for and it turned out he found many fights. At my mother's funeral, which was six years after my dad died, one of his three Marine Corps buddies who signed up with him was there and he said, your dad was something else. Every weekend when he was off duty, his regular clockwork, he'd go to a bar, get drunk, find the biggest, ugliest soldier in the place and start a fight. So my dad, the Marine, missed his chance to fight the enemy, so he fought the Army. He had a lot of growing up to do in those days. I mean, how foolish to fight a brother in arms. And maybe the Japanese wouldn't have surrendered had they known that the branches of the American military were fighting each other. Seems ridiculous, doesn't it? Now, before you answer that, think about this. If you ever had it in for someone who bears the name of Christ? I've known of brothers and sisters in Christ who should be as faithful to each other as brothers and sisters in arms to fight with each other. I've known pastors and even entire churches to spat with each other. Perhaps that's why the enemy of God hasn't already surrendered. Christian infighting gives him a measure, albeit a false measure, of hope. As we've searched the scriptures during this series, we have seen again and again that we're part of a kingdom that's in conflict. Until we grasp that, until we get that into us, we'll never live a down-to-earth Christian life. We're the advanced team. Our mission is to prepare for the coming of God's kingdom by inviting people to join Jesus and by demonstrating to them a different and better way of life. Our situation is roughly analogous to agents in Cuba during the 1950s. So there were, in the 1950s, there were, Cuba was full of American agents, British agents, Russian agents, each communicating with the authority that sent them, each trying to enlist people for their cause right up to the regime change. Now, put yourself in the place of an American agent in Cuba in 1957. You've got a nine-to-five job. You're managing a hotel in Havana, but your real job while you're there is to convince people that capitalism and the American way of life is best. So you're always telling people about America, always telling them anyone can succeed in America. You rep represent life here as secure and strong and happy. It's a place you like to tell people where Everyone has the opportunity to excel. And yet those same people who hear you saying these things see you treating your employees like chattel and hear you speaking to them with contempt. The way you treat people is contradicting your message and it's compromising your mission. Look, the same thing can and has happened in the Church of Christ. We have a calling we are in the world for a reason. We are tasked with preparing for the kingdom of God. As Jesus' people, we're not here to secure ourselves or our comforts. We're on mission. But the effectiveness of our mission in the world 
is inextricably linked to the rightness of our relationships in the church. It can't be separated. Christians aren't like everyone else. We have, this is verse 1, a calling. And that makes us different from other people. Imagine a crowded Florida beach. There are maybe thousands of people on the beach. They're eating and they're drinking, they're flirting, they're tanning, they're playing volleyball, they're throwing frisbees, they're reading, some of them are sleeping. But there are a few people on the beach who aren't doing any of those things. They're not drinking, they're not sleeping, they're not reading books. They're the lifeguards. They're not like everyone else at the beach. They have a mission that other people don't share. And that makes them different. They're on duty. And similarly, we who have joined Jesus have a mission. We're on duty. You're on duty. Now, just imagine that those lifeguards don't get along with each other. They get angry with each other. Or they're always competing with each other, trying to outshine each other in the eyes of the crowd. They're flexing their muscles. They're showing off their skills. And while they're doing that, they might not see that there's a shark circling a group of teens out there. They might not notice that someone's in distress, caught in a riptide. Someone might perish because they're fighting with each other. All right? That sets the stage for what we see in Ephesians 4. At the end of chapter 3, the Apostle Paul bursts out in one of the great benedictions in the Bible to him, and he's referring to the God of infinite, unstoppable love. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus now and forever. Amen. Glory to God is our calling. We are the PR firm, or if you, you'd rather stay with the military metaphor, we are the information warfare unit for God Almighty on earth. We influence people by the way we live, talk, love, think, give. We help people transfer their loyalty to God and his kingdom. But here's what we need to know. We don't do that simply as individuals. Sometimes we think, well, that's the job of the people with the gift of evangelism. That's not how it works. That was never the plan. We do it as a team, a unit, an army. Choose whatever analogy works for you. We do it as the church. See, a remarkable individual, and you've met them, someone who's loving and generous and sacrificial and strong, that remarkable individual makes people say, wow, he is the best guy I ever met, or she's one in a million. But a remarkable church, loving, generous, sacrificial, strong, makes people say, God is real. We're not here to advertise ourselves or even our church. We're not out to attract attention to ourselves, but to God. And God's strategy for doing that is through the church. John Wesley was absolutely right. The Bible knows nothing of solitary religion. Solitary religion is not God's plan. Maybe it'll bring you peace, but it will not bring God glory. It will not encourage people to change sides and come over to Jesus. When morale breaks down, when esprit de corps is lost, effectiveness falls sometimes dramatically. When that happens, 
outstanding individuals will still arise, but outstanding individuals won't get the job done. Now, that's true across the board. That's true in football. It's true in the military. It's true in business, but it's also true in the church. That's one reason the Bible says so much about relationships in the church. In the church, contention, factions, hypocrisy, and attitude of superiority are morale killers that compromise the mission, what we're here for. So the Bible condemns them repeatedly and in the strongest language. We need to conduct ourselves, as Paul says in verse 1, in a way that is worthy of our calling. That word worthy has the idea of bringing things into balance, like on a scale. Our life is supposed to be in balance with our calling. And that means that sometimes we'll be different from the people around us. Not because we're better than they are, but because we have a calling. Like a lifeguard on a beach has a calling. In our passage, we see what some of those differences between us and others are likely to be. What a life worthy of the calling looks like. The worthy life, this is verse 2, is completely humble and gentle. Now that needs some unpacking. Because in other places, the NIV uses the, the English word humility to translate both of the Greek words that Paul uses here. But there's an important difference between them. The one that's here translated as humble has to do with how a person thinks and acts in regard to himself. The one that's translated gentle has to do with how a person thinks and acts in regard to other people. Humility was not a favorite virtue in Paul's day. In fact, one of the, the, the most famous philosophers of his day headed a list of the things a person ought to avoid with the word humility. And you know what? It's not doing any better in our day. Just today, arrogance, pride, even chutzpah are the virtues of the day. Just look at politics or go on social media, which is ground zero for this weird epidemic of mistaken identity. Everybody seems to think that they're God. They're the judge of all the earth, and they're churning out condemnation right and left. That is not humility. But neither is humility acting like you're a nobody. You know, we've all seen that. The humble person lifts other people up. He doesn't put himself down. Putting yourself down is not a sign of humility. It may be a sign of psychological injury, but it's not a sign of humility. Putting other people down is a sign that humility is absent. Okay? Gentleness is the second trait of a worthy life. And gentleness is built right on top of humility. Humility is the foundation. If it's not in place, then gentleness will collapse like a third world building in an earthquake as soon as someone says something or does something that shakes us up. Oh, we'll be nice and gentle until somebody challenges us or says we're wrong or gets in our way. Gentleness. Understand that is not weakness. The gentle person can be tough but he can't be rude. The gentle person is strong, but not harsh. Kind, 
but not bullied. The gentle person won't yell or swear or call people names, but he will stand up for what's right. At the same time, the gentle person can be right without feeling the need to prove everyone else wrong. You know, it's hard to tell if a person is humble, especially yourself. It's hard to look at yourself and tell if you're humble when you're not in a position of, of power or social dominance. You know, when you're with the boss, it's hard to tell whether you're humble. But put a person in the dominant social position and then watch, and you'll see whether they're humble and gentle or not. Humble and gentle people will treat a cashier in, in the store or a server in a restaurant as an equal because they know that they are. The proud person will treat them as if they don't exist or as if they only exist to do their bidding. Whether or not a person is humble or gentle becomes especially clear when you see them relate to children. A person who ignores or, or berates a child is not humble and gentle, no matter how he or she acts when the boss or the pastor is around. And the same is true of the person who is habitually impatient with children. And that brings us to the third of these traits of a worthy life, patience. Humility, gentleness, patience, the big three. I've heard people say, well, don't pray for patience. Whatever you do, don't pray for patience. God will give you trials. Honestly, God isn't like that. Is he like a dad who thinks it's funny to give his kid a snake because he's asked for a fish dinner? That was Jesus' illustration. No, he won't do that. God never makes people suffer unnecessarily. You can ask for patience with perfect confidence that God will help you, not hurt you. Now, let's say that you know you're impatient. You're saying, oh, man, he's stepping on my toes today. I have a problem with being impatient with people. You feel bad about it. Your impatience, you know it's hurting relationships with your spouse, your kids, your friends. So you have to change. And so even though you're a little worried about it, you pray for patience. Now, here's what you have to understand. God can't just give you patience. God can't just give you patience because patience never exists in isolation. Patience is not a standalone virtue. Just as gentleness is built on humility, patience is built on gentleness. Patience is a third-story virtue. Trying to be patient without gentleness and humility is like trying to build the third floor of a building before building the first and second floors. You can try, but you won't succeed. You'll end up being impatient with your own impatience. <clears throat> Let's say I'm acquainted with two people that you don't know at all. <clears throat> I knew this was going to happen if I had to wear the Michigan tie, but I didn't expect it would happen this way. <clears throat> Let's say I'm acquainted with two people, total strangers to you, but I know that they're polar opposites. The one is humble, gentle, and patient, and the other is proud and harsh and impatient. And if I were to offer them $20 to stand in a room for 20 minutes facing the same direction without talking, and then I asked you to choose which of them was the humble 
patient, gentle one, and which was the other, I think you'd have a really hard time telling them apart. But if you saw them in action, relating to an annoying coworker, or let's say an annoying church member, you'd figure it out in no time. Humility, gentleness, and patience act in predictable ways over and over again. We find one of those ways, an important one, in verse 2. Bearing with one another. The way we usually say that in the vernacular is putting up with one another. You've got to put up with him. Putting up with one another does not sound very spiritual. But it might be the most spiritual thing you do all year. Putting up with a fellow Christian could require more spiritual energy than preaching a sermon or teaching a class or making a meal for the homeless or serving at the food pantry. Putting up with another person might require more grace than praying or meditating or leading someone to faith in Jesus. Putting up with another person is an important part of the worthy life when it's done, verse 2, in love. Now, you can put up with a person in a way that puts that person down, right? You've seen people do that. That's not what Paul's talking about. That has nothing to do with love. Paul's talking about putting up with annoyances and idiosyncrasies. You know, everyone has them, and I have more than my share. Putting up with them by loving them, bearing with one another in, or the preposition could equally mean by, putting up with them by love. That will not happen. That will never happen in the absence of humility, gentleness, and patience. Now that brings us to verse 3. Make every effort to keep, or that, that word could be translated to guard, the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Make every effort could be translated being eager. It's a participle. Being eager, hurrying, rushing, to keep the unity of the Spirit. The unity of the Spirit is so important. God considers it so important that whenever we see it threatened, we should all rush headlong to protect it. It's so important that God's enemy tries relentlessly to disrupt it. We'll never keep the unity of the Spirit until we learn how to put up with one another in love. God's plan for the world stands or falls, and it will stand, on our unity. Unity is not an option. It is of absolute importance. The unity keepers, those patient, gentle, humble people, usually overlooked by society but always honored by God, will be considered great in the kingdom of heaven. Now, you might be sitting there thinking, but this is church. You know, this is not work. This is church. It might seem like being humble and gentle and patient with church people shouldn't be all that difficult. Eugene Peterson reminded us that church is not, nor was it ever intended to be, a gathering place of the nicer people in town. No, the church is full of sinners and hypocrites and the morally weak and the socially challenged. In other words, the church is full of people like you and me. People who have been trapped in ways of thinking and acting 
that make relationships difficult. Putting up with one another is a challenge. It is also a priority. Look, we're not in the church because we're nice. We're in the church because we were called. We've joined Jesus' side. We are brothers and sisters in arms, in the arms of God, following Jesus and serving God's kingdom. Now, we've got all kinds of problems. We're not easy to get along with. I know I'm not. I've got lots of idiosyncrasies. But we are in this together. That's our challenge, to live worthy of our calling. Now, calling's not a job. After eight hours or maybe 10 or 12 hours, you can leave a job, but you can't leave a calling. And ours is a high calling. And that means we need to learn to live it up, to live for God and his kingdom. And it starts with how we relate to fellow Christ followers in our homes, in our workplaces, but especially in our church. The church is the, the core of God's strategy for what's happening in the world. Too often, you and I have followed the same old downward course when relationships get difficult. And we start doing the same things. We withdraw. We start using contempt. We start getting proud and evaluating ourselves and judging the other person. We don't need to follow that downward course. We need to live it up. What would that look like in your life right now? If you were, if you were living your relationships in the light of your calling, do you need to forgive someone? Would you be doing that? Would you be asking for forgiveness? Would patience be required? Do you need to put up with someone who irritates you? Is there a relationship that's wrong? And is there something you can do to make it right or at least make it better? See, this stuff is not optional. It's God's will. Did you know that periods of great effectiveness in the church always start? I think it might not be too much to say, always start when people make right relationships that are wrong in the church. We have our orders. And maybe while I've been speaking, God has issued individualized orders to you this morning. If that's the case, don't wait to obey. Your spiritual well-being and the well-being of the church depend on it. Let's live it up, not down, up. Let's pray. Lord, we're listening to hear what you have to say to us.
Lord, without doubt, there are relationships that are difficult for us. Would you please resource us? Provide us with the help we need so that we don't follow that same downward course we've been on so many times before. Help us to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. For the sake of our Lord Jesus, amen.